Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to attend the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to attend the Channelized Bing Bingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whatever the mission, home or away, Enterprise helps over 120,000 people every day. With vans of all shapes and sizes, if you have a plan, Enterprise has a van. No matter if you need to rent for an hour, a day, a week or longer, Enterprise offers great rates for you or your business. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. I'm Jared Kimber, and with me is John Norman. Each week, we'll be taking a deep dive into one particular topic and asking a question about sport. This week, we're asking, why do retired athletes risk their body and reputations to come back? Is it redemption, to right wrongs, or for one final taste of the big time? Do they risk more physical harm in pursuit of glory, or are they only doing what the public want? And even when it descends into fast, what does it say about us that we'll still tune in to watch? And on some occasions, should they even be allowed to come back at all? You're listening to TalkSport, and this is The Dive. Many doubted we'd ever see it. But here it is. The return to glory. Hello, John. Hello, Jared. Hope you're well. I'm very well. Can you do me a favor? Can I know how many notes you take and how much research you do, but can you just... Push your notes to one side and forget all the all the research you've been doing over the last few days. Just sort of blank your mind a little bit. Off the top of your head, what what kind of athletes are most often making comebacks? I'm not sure we've got a sound effect for me putting my notes aside, but um, <laughs> I'll get the producer to, to work on that. Um, well, look, when we spoke about this a few days ago, before I made all my extensive notes, two sports came to mind. Boxing, absolutely the obvious one. And the reason that we're talking about this, aren't we? Because of Mike Tyson and Vander Holyfield. Um, and it's also the kind of sport that attracts that kind of, uh, of comeback. And tennis, uh, female tennis, because, of course, women's tennis is often competed at the very highest level by very young kids. And I suppose they've got time in their lives, if they want to, to actually come back and try and do it all over again. No, you're right, definitely. And I think that's something that we can discuss later in the show. So basically what I've done is I've come up with a, a list of, you know, a few reasons why athletes retire. So the most obvious one is the body gives up. The other one is more the, the emotional side of things. And it's different in different sports, but essentially they can't motivate themselves to, to push anymore. Sometimes it's a legacy. You do see athletes, you know, after a big, you know, a gold medal win or after a championship, just sort of walk away because they've done everything that they've ever wanted to do. And there's just, I think, old fashioned burnout. So I think those are the sorts of reasons that athletes actually do walk away from the game. Yeah, and then there are the situations where the athlete doesn't have a choice. Formula One, you see this a lot. If you don't get a, a ride for the next season, then very often that's the end of your career. So some retire because contracts aren't renewed. Some retire because form just drops off alarmingly. Or some retire because they're just not allowed to compete anymore. If you fall off the top 16 in snooker, it's very difficult to take part in tournaments. Same thing kind of happens in golf. Thinking of golf, the Masters must be one of the only tournaments in the world which allows past champions to compete on a level playing field against current champions in a tournament that actually maintains something approaching credibility. But some can come back. Yeah, I mean, golf's probably a different sport because it is a sport where we've seen people well over, you know, 40 and 50 still compete. Whereas most sports, that's very, very rare. But yeah, I think people do come back for many different reasons. And, and I think that, I remember, I think it was Kevin Peterson was on, on Twitter recently, was saying he wonders if this, the, the COVID-19, you know, uh, hiatus will mean that a lot of players who were thinking about retiring have now just had 
three, four, five, six months where their body is not being banged around a bit. They're having a break for the first time in their life. You, you realize how little athletes have a break. So when sometimes when athletes retire, what they feel is all those niggles that they've been playing with sort of go away and their body feels better. And they think, well, if my body feels good now, all I needed was a break rather than retirement. So there's a lot of different sort of reasons, isn't there, why players actually eventually come back. But I suppose one of the most important ones is money. There is one other thing, though, that is needed here. What's that? Well, you need somebody in a similar situation to compete against. And that's why boxing is very often the sport where people do make comebacks because you can't just decide to come back and play Premier League football or try and compete at the highest level in sports, which have either got a proper league pyramid or a ranking structure. And that's why boxing is an ideal platform because uh, you only need two people, two former famous people, and you've got yourself a boxing match. It doesn't matter if it's for the heavyweight championship of the world. People are going to watch. But you do see there's quite a few like incredible athletes that have come back that have just been terrible. Uh, Mark Spitz was probably the first super fish, uh, if that was a phrase back when he was a swimmer. And he retired at 22, and he made a comeback uh, years later, and he's paid a million dollars to come back, and he didn't even qualify for the Olympics. We saw Bjorn Borg, who was perhaps the best tennis player of all time. He won 51 of his 55 matches at Wimbledon. When he came back, he played 11 matches and lost all 11. So we've certainly seen that people will do it over a few different sports. But when it comes down to it, I think boxing is the one that we think of. And, you know, that's the reason we're talking today because of what happened with Mike Tyson. So I went to chat to Gareth A. Davies, the legendary boxing writer, about Mike Tyson. George Foreman was slugging everyone out with his booming heavy hands in his 20s. And he ran up against Muhammad Ali in the Rumble in the Jungle. And he, and he got exposed by an artist in, in the most watched fight of all times, kind of epitomized and glorified by the brilliant documentary, When We Were Kings. And if anyone hasn't seen it, go and watch it, because it is amazing, their fight in Kinshasa in 1974. But he retires in 77, a grumpy guy by that stage, and he comes back 10 years later, having become a preacher, his personality having changed, and he boxes until 1994 and becomes a world champion. He's a different persona at the time, and he knocks out Michael Mora, and he becomes the heavyweight champion of the world again, a few days short of his 46th birthday. For me, that's the exception, the utter exception to the rule. And I tell you why boxing's different, Jared, because you get punched in the head, it's a very physically damaging sport. Boxing has inherent dangers, even when you're in your prime. But the longer you go on and the more you do it, and the longer you leave it away from the ring and come back, it, the, the more dangerous it is. That was Gareth A. Davies. You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. Hey, did you know that George Foreman has got five sons and he's called them all George? Auntie's daughter's named Georgina as well. That is incredible, isn't it? He also made as a grill. Much as I... he, he made a grill. Like, he... Well, everyone knows that. But, but the fact that he transcended his sport to get... I, I, I find George Foreman one of the most incredible athletes of all time. If you, Gareth is right. You go back and you watch When We Were Kings. He's literally mumbling the whole film. And now he's like a spokesman for all these different things. And he has a grill. I mean, I've got a, his, the George Foreman grill. Do you have the George Foreman grill? No, I don't have the George Formal Grill. And I love the way that Gareth presents that story, but I'm not sure what it says about the sport of boxing when a 46-year-old can come back and, inverted commas, become a world heavyweight champion. But Gareth knows what he's talking about, so maybe I shouldn't disagree. It does, however, shine a light on what inspires a boxer to risk their lives. But as you say, all of those reasons really underpinned by the same driving force, the one that we thought at the top of the show, money. Yeah, and I think money is sort of the default um, position we think about when we think about comebacks. So that's something I talk to Gareth directly about. I'm assuming everyone has slightly different reasons, even if money is obviously always there. Yeah, well, Ricky Hatton, he'd been beaten by Floyd Mayweather after an amazing run undefeated and made millions. And he says he took 40,000 fans to Las Vegas. I think it was more like 25, but the numbers grow with time. You know, he also went back and was knocked out by Manny Pacquiao. And he was so popular 
they were still chanting in the stands, there's only one Ricky Hatton, even when he was flat out and knocked out. He left a gap of three years and came back and fought Vyacheslav Senchenko and got stopped by him and knew that it was over. But I think he came back to feel the love again, to see if the love for him was still there. He had millions in the bank, but he came back for that night where I say he just wanted that addiction to feeling the love of the fans again. Floyd Mayweather strategically gave us more with less as his career went on. He was once Lil Floyd, you know, pretty Floyd, but he became Money Mayweather, this character who generated almost a billion dollars from his fights, but billions and billions of dollars for the Las Vegas economy. He retired and came back in 2009 after saying he was stopping in 2007. He retired when he was getting to fights 48 undefeated and came back and fought Andre Berto. He came back again and did that crossover fight with uh, Conor McGregor where boxing met MMA. But each time he just earned more and more money because he was a marketing genius. And for him, it was about money. And it was, oh my God, Mayweather's coming back again. He was the biggest draw in the sport. And he could see that the caveats that he had left was still there. The marketing opportunity for him still to be the biggest name in the sport. Could he get knocked out by this guy finally? That's what he came back for. And he was a marketing genius in the end. That's why he did it. Did I ever tell you about the time I met Mike Tyson? No, and I'm to be honest, I'm a little off put that this far into our life together as as <laughs> as friends that you're suddenly mentioning that you know you've met Mike Tyson. Okay, so look in in our career we have some surreal days, do we not? Yes. And uh, the meeting Mike Tyson goes down as one of the crazier days that I've had in this business. So picture the scene, okay? 2006, Talksport situated in Hatfields. Um, which isn't too far from the Oxo Tower, very famous uh, building that overlooks the Thames. All week, uh, we've been trying to line up an interview with Mike Tyson, and we get to the day. I'm one of the producers on the Rodney Marsh and Paul Brin Turner drive time show. Get the call. Mike Tyson will come into the studio. But one of the production team have got to go and get him from the Oxo Tower and bring him to the studio. So I get chosen to head off to the Oxo Tower to get Mike Tyson back to uh, to the studios. Turn up at the Oxo Tower and sure enough, there's Mike Tyson. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen somebody physically let their, their jaw drop open in surprise. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever actually seen someone do that, but I did on that day when walking out of the Oxo Tower restaurant, and all the people in the restaurant suddenly realised that Mike Tyson was sitting there and had been sitting there and having just eaten a steak. It was just a ridiculous afternoon. There was I with Mike Tyson, a blonde, very attractive woman, which Mike Tyson was paying particularly close attention to. There were some hangers on, there were some bouncers and there were some Irish fighters. In total, there was about 15 people sitting around a table and there was me. We get to the lift and one of the guys that's with Mike Tyson, he looks to be packing a gun, if I'm being totally honest, American bloke. He points to me and says, you know where you're going. You come with us. So anyway, I get into the lift, me, Mike Tyson, blonde girl, bloke with a gun, and then a couple of other heavies. Lift starts to go down. And this American guy just turns to Mike Tyson and goes, Hey, Mike, this guy has been taking the out of you all afternoon. And then just points at me. <laughs> and Mike Tyson just locks his eyes with me, with me. And I made this really strange gurgling sound. Anyway, doors opened at the bottom. And there's me walking down the street with Mike Tyson. Anyway, we got him in the studio. He did his piece. Off he goes. And that's my Mike Tyson anecdote. How many times do you think his friend has done the, the joke of, uh, <laughs> of trying to set up a someone? Lot. <laughs> it, that must be like, a, like an hourly thing with them. That's their icebreaker. Uh, I mean, that, <laughs> that's incredible. And again, I feel a little bit slighted that uh, well, I've known you this long and you've never mentioned the time that Mike Tyson almost beat you up in a lift. <laughs> 
You're listening to The Dive on TalkSport. I'm Jared Kimber and with me is John Norman. It's pretty sad to see how many top sports people end up going bust within a few years of retiring, isn't it? I mean, the numbers are... I mean, they're terrifying, really. And it's something we probably don't talk about enough in sports. You, you hear so much about how much players earn, but you don't talk about kind of what happens afterwards. So no one could come up with an exact figure, you know, league to league. But you see numbers like 60% of NBA and NFL players are bankrupt within five years. In professional football in the UK, it's something, it's supposed to be 40%. It's very hard to get an exact number on that because a lot of players don't talk about what happens to them as well. And there's filing for bankruptcy and there's just not having any money, which are slightly different things. But athletes are between three and four times more likely to have gambling problems as well uh, than, than a normal member of the, the public. So there's there's just so many different ways that they sort of can lose that money that they have. And when you think about, in, you know, top-level athletes, think about what they do to prepare to be, become number one. They're not business people. They don't really understand money. Um, I, t- I tell you a story I, I heard from an American writer friend of mine. He said that he knew of an athlete who, when they got lots of money, they literally bought every seat on a plane and it cost them, you know, 20 grand, whereas a private jet would have cost them like eight grand. So even when they're splashing the money, they're not even splashing it in the right way because they don't really understand how to do things like that. And a, and a cricketer friend of mine told me one day he doesn't like traffic, so he's just started using helicopters everywhere. And I was like, just sit in the traffic, mate. Yeah, I remember covering something similar when I was producing the Keys and Gray show back in uh, 2011. Uh, anyway, I fished out an old article in the Daily Mail and it said that 150 former professional footballers, they're not just broke now, they're in prison. And one of the main reasons for that is that they fall into drug dealing after being let loose by their club. So it's not just money that people lose, it's their livelihoods as well. And it's... Um, you know, this is a, a really serious problem because people just aren't educated in the ways of having to pick up their lives once they've stopped being professional sports stars. Yeah, and, you know, they come back into normal life and it's it's a bit like, you know, coming back from the army or something. You know, you you are so regimented. Everything that you do in your life is, is so structured and suddenly you're back and you don't know what to do with yourself. And there's all the, the sort of normal things as well. So remember, I'm going to come up with a very random pop culture reference here, but uh, when MC Hammer was incredibly popular, he spent all that money on this huge house and I don't think he could ever pay it off because he never had another hit after that. The amount of athletes who spend all this money like they're going to continue to make the same money they are at 25 when they're 35 or 45, it just doesn't happen like that. Most athletes, you know, in the last year of their contract make more money than they do in the next five years of their life. The money just dries up and it stops. And then if you throw in all these other things like the competitiveness that athletes have, I mean, athletes are competitive even off the field. You read so many stories about like one player in the team buys, you know, the, you know, a new gold plated Hummer and then someone else has to go out and get, you know, a cherry pink Lamborghini and, you know, to try and top it. And, and you see that all the time. They're very competitive in, in house buying, in car buying, all those sorts of things all come together with the fact that their careers are so ridiculously short and that afterwards, no one's sure what they're going to ever earn again. One of the really surprising things we discovered making this movie is how easy it actually is for multimillionaires to go broke, especially professional athletes. Sports Illustrated published their story about how professional athletes go broke, and they had these uh, shocking, controversial statistics about the percentage of NFL and NBA players who go broke after retirement. And while none of the leagues came out and publicly disputed them, there was a lot of private chatter about them being high. When we started to examine the issue, we found that regardless of, of how precise those stats were, it was still a widespread problem bordering on an epidemic. That was from the trailer of Broke, the ESPN documentary, which talks about some incredible athletes. I think it might mention Antoine Walker, the NBA player, who at one stage had a 70-person entourage uh, that traveled around with him. So you can understand why he went broke. But we, John, you and I spend a lot of our time with uh, former professional cricketers. And what I've noticed is just how much they get bored um, especially in that time just after they retire, they really do miss the sort of regimental side of life and they do remain incredibly competitive, even in normal conversation. Yeah, and most of them have got a sad tale, haven't they, about why they had to retire, the struggles they went through mentally in the years that followed. And in a, in a weird way, you know, I think that 2020 cricket has actually helped make that situation a lot better. 
What do you mean? Also, uh, you know, it allows you a certain degree of freedom to, to pick and choose when you want to play, where you want to go. And that's that's been great for us ex-cricketers. I mean, in the early 2000s, if you retired, you had, you had nothing else to look forward like to. Me. <laughs> <laughs> other than Other than moving on away from cricket or yeah. into media or into... To actually think about playing, you know, you would have played maybe exhibition games at that time or the odd charity game. But now, when you retire, to be actually able to continue playing at this level is is an unbelievable bonus for us. And I think it's it's great also for our mental health, you know, for, for yeah. cricketers, ex-cricketers. There's been, you know, a lot of cricketers from every country who found it very difficult to adjust to, to life post-retirement. But this, I think, is a perfect way to kind of ease into life after cricket. So that was Sri Lankan cricket god Kumar Sangakkara, uh, current president of the MCC. He was talking to Darren Goff back in 2016. We were in Dubai. Uh, they were playing the uh, MCL, which is a, a kind of weird Masters T20 league with current players involved as well. But the, the point uh, is is a correct one insofar that if you retired around 2000 and before... Cricket isn't like football, is it? You make your money, you get your glory in the international game. You never used to have that when you dropped back to county championship. And that's why a lot of players, when the end came at international level, they just said, well, I'm not continuing anymore. And they went from literally everything to nothing. And even if they go on to another job or business opportunities or, you know, even, even you know, going into retirement, they don't, they're not quite sure what to do. And I talked to some really big English cricketers not that long ago about this, and they, they, there was just this sort of blank look on their faces when I was asking them what they were doing with their time. They couldn't even tell me what they were doing. And I spent a lot of my time uh, on LinkedIn, you know, looking for athletes and looking for, you know, writers and, uh, and, and these sorts of things to, to, to chat to, to get on shows like this and to do interviews with. When you go through former players' LinkedIn profiles, it is a career graveyard of almost every former athlete has like three businesses that they were involved with um, that disappear that don't make any sense when you read up about them and it just seems to happen again and again and another thing that I think we've noticed a lot because we 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 find ourselves in hotels and airports with with these you know former cricketers especially and people fans come up to them and the way they talk to, about them there's very much you know it's that thing of going oh my mum loved you as a player or it's that thing of oh when I was when I was young I used to watch you play and all these sorts of things of oh I bet you wish you you know got the money that the major players you know do these days it's all these little. I suppose we call them microaggressions now. And it's not that the, the fans are having a go because they're having a nostalgia hit, aren't they? They're suddenly seeing these players and all these memories are coming back. But you see that these former players just get used to being talked about in the past tense. And you do see, I think, maybe a really good example of a, of a player who retired and, and sort of didn't know what to do with himself and ballooned in weight is, is Tyson Fury. So I talked to Gareth A. Davies about him specifically. This is an extraordinary story. And, and again, this is a... The kind of reason for coming back that, again, is another area of the human being. He's beaten Vladimir Klitschko. He's won the world titles. It's all he ever wanted. He achieved his own Everest. He zooms down into this bipolar world where he, he loses the reason, almost the reason for living. He balloons up in weight. He goes on drug and alcohol binges. He loses the reason why he ever did this in the first place. And he's mentally ill. So his comeback was about getting his sanity back. It's an extraordinary story that he's out of the sport, he's, he's AWOL, you know, he's out for two and a half years. And then over a year, he loses a stone per month and gets back to 19 stone. And then comes back, has two kind of facile fights and comes back and fights the world champion, Deontay Wilder, regardless of one of the heaviest, most dangerous punchers of all time, and gets a draw, but everybody believes he won the fight, beats the guy a second time, and over the course of two years, becomes a kind of totemic figure in society for people with mental illness. So here's another journey back. A journey back that saved his life, he believes, you know? So, yes, it's about the money as well in some ways. He's on an £80 million five-fight deal with ESPN now in the United States. And he's 
kind of vaunted all over the world and people send messages saying you helped me through my mental illness and I suppose there are parallels with Mike Tyson in some ways that being fit again kind of saved him mentally emotionally and physically but I think when it's over when it really is over that's when it's difficult you know he was thinking about killing himself in a sports car one day and he didn't do it you know and and thought no I need to get back and and boxing boxing has kept him alive what a beautiful storyteller gareth a davis is isn't he um but i suppose if there's one thing to take from the point of this show is that maybe tyson fury will never have to properly retire if tyson his namesake mike tyson can come back age 50 odd then maybe we'll be talking and watching tyson fury making comebacks the next 20 30 years you're listening to the dive on Talksport with jared kimber and john norman Whenever and wherever you need a vehicle and whatever it's for, Enterprise can help. With over 450 locations across the UK, they're just around the corner. Whether you need a weekend rental, a holiday hire, a replacement car, or you're planning a business trip, home or away, Enterprise are there to help. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. This is The Dive on TalkSport. I'm Jared Kimber, and with me is Jonathan Norman. So we've talked a lot of boxing already, but another sport that seems to have comebacks as well, and you, I think you mentioned it at the top, is women's tennis. So I found Barry Cowan, uh, the man who took Pete Sampras to five sets in 2001, who's now a coach and a pundit on Sky, and we talked a little bit about why women's tennis seems to have so many comebacks. As far as the comebacks go, we've seen Martina Hingis and Jennifer Capriati come back. Jennifer Capriati, I think, got back to number one after she came back. Martina Hingis probably never was the singles player she was beforehand, but went on to be, be great at doubles. So with, with a bit of a rest and a couple of years, uh, these women are still young enough to make comebacks, aren't they? Yep, and Kleisters as well. Different, di- yeah. different circumstances. Kleisters had, had a baby, came back, and I think, stand to be corrected, maybe her third stroke, fourth tournament. She goes out and wins the U.S. Open. I mean, you, you never forget. It's like riding a bike. You never forget to be able to hit a tennis ball. What you do sometimes forget is how to win the big matches, come through the big moments. But as a champion, you can never underestimate that, that champion's mentality. And, and sometimes it can just click. But it has to come with the will. And I always feel generally the will is what goes first. The, the, the will to be able to get out of bed every day and make yourself a bit better tennis player. And, and that can be mentally challenging because tennis essentially is hitting a ball backwards and forwards. And when you've done it millions and millions and millions of times, um, I can totally get it when players really say, you know what, enough is enough. We saw Ash Barty uh, give up tennis and go back, go to cricket and then come back to tennis. Uh, she's now gone on to be world number one. Uh, Annabelle Croft was someone who retired very early on. I think she was 20 or 21. So let's say Ash Barty doesn't come back and there's a lot of Annabelle Crofts out there who are good players but are retiring in their early 20s. That means women's tennis is probably missing out on, on a lot of you know, top-level players because of this burnout and because of this starting early. That's how I see it, and that certainly seems how the WTA see it, and that's why they brought in the rule now. To, you know, and, and also, it's, it's that welfare of the athlete. You know, so for every Sharapova, which, which was an extraordinary story, winning women at 17 years of age, we don't hear of the thousands of tennis players 
who go through that homeschooling, who go, for, who go to that tennis academy, whether it, be, whether it be in Florida, whether it be in Spain, whether it be somewhere else, who fall by the wayside. And, and then you're kind of left with, with nothing. So they're the ones who don't make it. And the ones who do make it, that, that it, you eventually retire early, you never know what could have been. And, and then that's why it's so difficult to weigh up. And I, I actually think that the Barty story is great for tennis because what it shows is you can get off that, that conveyor belt and, and you, by taking a break away from the sport, and now Barty was fortunate that she was talented enough that she was still able to stay in that sort of mentality. You know, it wasn't as if she gave up tennis and then sat in a living room watching TV for six months you know, her mind is still very much active, that actually you can come back a better tennis player. Now, do you come back a tennis player because you've hit a lot more balls? No, because I think, you've, I think you mature as people. And it's also something that, that is, is close to my heart, that I think that it, is a, it ends up being more of a negative when you see junior players sacrifice absolutely everything, that they don't have that all-round development. Um, so if you can play team sports, along with your tennis, but keep up your homeschooling. You know, it's a long career. I mean, now tennis players are playing amazing tennis at 35, 36, 37, 38, where, you know, 20 years ago, it was almost, you felt as a tennis player, certainly probably more so as a female tennis player. Well, actually, if you're not, if you're not hitting the big time at 23, 24, then it's too late. So that was Barry Cowan there? I suppose those that, and there are so many cases of this, aren't there? Those that were driven so hard by their parents, forcing them to train week in, week out, 10,000 rules of genius and all that, I imagine. They've got to rebel at some point, don't they? Um, and they do so once maybe they've made their money, they've got to an age where they feel powerful enough and in control enough that they can you know, say no to their parents. When we did it, it was about dyeing our hair and breaking our arm, stage diving off our parents' sofa. Okay, that might have just been me. But... The point is, is that then when they come back again, maybe they're doing it for themselves rather than doing it for their parents. Yeah, and you mentioned something earlier too. I mean, not just the weird dyeing your hair. Although Jennifer Capriati basically did have, like she had her teenage years in front of the whole world, didn't she? Um, and she was very... Basically, I am the Jennifer Capriati of sports broadcasting. I, I was thinking that a little bit. But you also talked about the fact that you can make it, if your career starts at 13 or 14, you can actually make a decent comeback in your mid-20s when you're still realistically in your physical peak. So uh, that was another thing that I talked to Barry about. If you historically look at female tennis players, some of the greats that they've been, real excellent world-class players they've excelled at their sport at a very young age and the reason they've excelled at their at their very young age jennifer capriati age 14 martina hingis winning grand slam doubles winning grand slam singles age 16 is to get to that stage they've had to sacrifice and put in so many hours when you look at tennis tennis very much a repetition sport so to sort of break it down simply, the more hours you do, the more time you spend on court, the more chance you have of getting a higher level earlier. And then when you put in the mental side of it, no wonder it takes its toll. And, and, and I think, you know, Coco Goff last year, she hit the headlines. And so much of the debate last year around her run at Wimbledon was, should they scrap the law or the rule that they now have in the women's tour where you're only allowed to play so many tournaments at, at her age, or should you keep it in place? And, and I think we've seen that they should, they should keep that rule in place because what, yes, you want the players to reach their potential, but you also want longevity. And, you, and along with longevity, you also want the players to be mentally fresh enough to be able to have a long career. Professional sports, if you're 25, is quite an interesting thing to get into. But if you're 14, 15, 16, the stress of that mentally traveling around, having an entourage must just be really tough for those. If you, if you look at a lot of tennis players, mainly they, are, they have a very driven parent or two. And they're the ones who are making the sacrifices. And then there, are, there have been occasions as well where the whole family is making sacrifices. So at a, at a young age, at 12, 13, some of them are homeschooling as well. So, so there's so much pressure on them. And the whole family is living their life around that very, very talented 
tennis player who ultimately is trying to hit it big time. And, and then you've got the pressures of, of playing in front of, you know, you're on stage. Every time you go, you, you go out to play, you're in the spotlight. And then you've got the media who are looking at every match you're playing. Well, actually, you know, player X, she wasn't, as, she wasn't mentally as strong as she was a month ago. She doesn't look physically as strong as she was two months ago. They've got to be able to bat it off in their press conference. And there's no hiding place. You know, in team sports, if you have a bad day, you know, maybe the manager has to pick up the flag. In tennis, you're, you're the one who's got to face the, the interviews afterwards. So that was Barry Cowan there. So I checked up on the rule. Uh, so the WTA brought in the age restriction in 1994, and it was directly because of uh, Jennifer Capriati, the, the John Norman of, of women's tennis. <laughs> and I, I, I went and looked at the data afterwards because, you know, that's what I do. And in the late 90s, the average age of women's Grand Slam winners was often less than 20. In 1997, the average age of all four winners was 16.25, right? In 2015, it was 32. Now, those are both sort of outlier years, but you could definitely see a huge w- – women in tennis are certainly getting older and, and better, whereas before it was teenagers winning. So that rule has really changed things. So I think you could see then, you know, a, a, lot, of, a lot of athletes don't like it. Roger Federer has talked about recently he doesn't want it because uh, he wants Coco Golf to be able to play as many tournaments as possible. But I actually think for us to see – if Coco Golf is as good as everyone thinks she'll be, she'll probably have a much better career if she's not overused at this age. So we've talked about tennis and the youth that is on the side of many women's tennis players, allowing them to make comebacks. We've talked about the money, the driving force and how boxing allows that platform. As long as you've got two people willing to come back, then it's quite easy to arrange. But, you know, there are other sports as well. Motor sport is one that actually, if you think about it, gives you a great platform to make a comeback because there are differing levels of motorsport. I'm not sure if you've heard of Alessandro Nanini and Alessandro Zanardi, but they are both Italian um, former top racing drivers, both horrendously injured. Alessandro Nanini actually nearly lost an arm in a helicopter accident. It robbed him of his F1 career, but it didn't stop him coming back three years later and actually racing successfully in international touring cars. Alessandro Zanardi, He lost both of his legs in a horrendous car crash in America. But two years later, he was racing the Touring Car Championship for BMW, did so for six years, and he then went on to win golds at the London and Rio Paralympics in hand cycling, which is a form of uh, Paralympic cycling. So, you know, they were two sports stars who were forced into retirement, but then, of course, came back. There is another one as well that came to mind, and he's actually an old hero of yours. Oh, Martin Crow! Martin Crow was a yeah, yeah, huge, a huge hero of mine. I used to dress like Martin Crow. Uh, I told well, him that once, okay. and he was very off put by me saying that. <laughs> this is the brilliance of what we're starting to investigate and find out here, because it's not all about the money. It's not all about the glory. It's not all about trying to get back to what you feel was robbed from you because of you know, of injury. Martin Crow, when he was aged 49, a friend of his made him aware that he had retired just three first class matches shy of 250 and just 392 runs short of 20,000 first class uh, runs. So he decided he was going to try and make uh, a comeback. So he set about getting himself match fit. He went and uh, played for the old club here in Auckland in a bid to try and get a call up to one of the domestic first class counties. Anyway, when it came to it, it lasted three deliveries, two dot balls, and then a nice comfortable push into the covers. He ran through for a single, his thigh muscle went and he never played again. Funnily enough. So Martin Crowe's top score is 299. And I said to him once, do you know how beautiful that is? Because it's a very hard number to forget. And there's a, there's a sense of longing in it. So you're very lucky to have such a great top score. And he looked at me and said, 300 would be better. There is one other, and we can't have a show about comebacks without mentioning Sir Steve Redgrave. Famously, 1996 wins his fourth Olympic gold. And he's told, he, he is overheard saying, if anyone sees me going anywhere near a boat again, they have my permission to shoot me. Four years later, of course, he wins his fifth gold, doesn't he? He does get back in the boat. So uh, comebacks do occur, 
And unlike Martin Crow, the late Martin Crow, they sometimes are very successful. I think sometimes is the important word there. You are listening to The Dive on TalkSport with Jared Kimber and John Norman. So one thing I couldn't stop thinking about was how different the world is since Mike Tyson retired. So I got on a podcaster and writer, Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt, to talk about how Tyson sort of fits in with this new world. I think first and foremost, you have to look at it in the, the context of sporting comebacks. And when I think about the idea of someone like Mike Tyson coming back into the main into mainstream sport, I kind of equate it to wrestling and nostalgia pops. And uh, whether anyone's a wrestling fan here to, to, briefly, uh, to, to briefly explain that, it means uh, an older wrestler who was popular in the 80s or 90s who comes back and gets a roar, what we call a pop in wrestling, a roar that has never been heard in a long, long time because it brings everybody back to some level of their childhood. So Mike Tyson is like a Hulk Hogan type figure. Now, the reason I say that is when he, if and when this comeback happens, people will be excited for it. Not because they're excited for a 53-year-old Mike Tyson, they're excited for the reminder of what life used to be. If he was making a comeback five or six years ago and he was still in the consciousness, I think it would be a huge thing that you have a rapist making a comeback right at the moment. But being that it was, was 1992, uh, we're talking about, it's a long time ago and a lot has gone on with Tyson's life since then. But mm. the Me Too movement is so strong and there is going to be some, some kind of blowback. Whether it's going to be enough to stop the fight or disrupt the fight, I'm not sure. Boxing fans, I think a different breed than other sporting fans. So I could see how they would be willing to go. But it's such, a, it's such an interesting thing because he lived a whole career after that incident. But, but the world just isn't anything like what it was when he was a boxer. I guess how, how much do you forgive? How much can somebody's past, do we put it to one side? And sport is weird. Sport is weird like that um, because as fans, we kind of live through sports people. We can excuse sports people for the very worst of offences and we can, we can bring them down and rehabilitate them um, in, equal, in equal measures as well. So that was Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt there uh, talking about Mike Tyson coming into this new world. John, thoughts? So remember at the start of the show, I told you my Mike Tyson anecdote and you remarked with some surprise that you'd never heard it before, correct? Mm. Yeah. And then I told it again in front of one of my female friends. And instead of laughter, there was a bit of a pause. And she just turned to me and said, what, Mike Tyson, the guy who raped that woman? And it just made me stop and think. And I haven't really told that story again since then, because it doesn't feel right to be telling an anecdote about a guy that essentially raped somebody. Now, I'm all for redemption. I believe that people should be shown forgiveness. But as far as I'm aware, I don't think Mike Tyson's ever apologised for raping Desiree Washington. And there are plenty of people in prison for doing far less than that in America right now. Young black guys without his money, without his fame, who certainly saw off or saw out a much longer sentence than the three years he served for his crime. So... I'm not sure, Jared, you know, are we kind of dancing around a subject about a man that really should have been put to bed a long time ago, especially when you consider in this country, in England, if a sportsman raped a woman, they would not be welcome back. Alex Hepburn, a Worcestershire County cricketer, found guilty of raping a girl in 2019. His career is over. Now, why is it that not only is Mike Tyson allowed to play professional sport again, or did, did so, but actually he's not the only one, is he? Because in American sport, unlike any other nation, domestic violence does not preclude you from your career after you've either served your time or said you're sorry. And that's a bit of a weird situation to find ourselves in. Yeah, and that's why I asked the question, essentially. And I think it's a very, it's a very interesting time because when Tyson actually came out of jail... It was He was celebrated, really, as much as anything. It was like, we can't wait to see what he does next. And part of that was not just 
you know, it wasn't a celebration of him um, coming out of jail. It was the novelty of, you know, the world champion coming out of jail and, and all of those sorts of things. But I just can't imagine that would happen anymore. And, and this is why I was so interested, and that's why I got Michelle on, because I was so interested in how Tyson fits back into society. Because the other thing is, if you take the Me Too movement to one side, and that has changed the world, the other one is what's going on right now is Black Lives Matter. And Mike Tyson also fits into that. So here's Michelle talking about that as well. When I was going back and looking at what was written about Tyson when he won the belt at 20 and obviously his 19 title defences or whatever it was, the words that I kept seeing were beast, brute and savage. And I'm laughing because it's absurd. Imagine if Anthony Joshua was described as a beast brute. And, and the thing is, um, Tyson was described like that everywhere. It wasn't like the odd one or two. It wasn't the odd one or two um, broadcasters or newspaper columns. That it was, was the just, default, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the default definition of Tyson. And I'm fairly certain that they would say, but it was just an apt description for how he fought. But you'd never accept that today. And rightly so, I hasten to add. But, um, but you just wouldn't, you wouldn't accept it today. And now you look at it, it blows my mind how that was ever allowed. I mean, he was young. He was exploited. So that's why it was allowed. There's so many people around him exploiting him that even if on any level he thought, why are people describing me as a savage and not describing the fact that I'm an excellent technical boxer? Who, who was going to listen to him? Who yeah. was fighting his corner? He was a young man who lots of people were making huge amounts of money on. He, he was exploited his whole career, all the way through his career. So you almost, even, even if you say he's a rapist, you would also say this man has, was exploited by the systems of fame, by the systems of sport, and specifically by boxing all the way through. Once you say the line, like, let's, shouldn't, I don't want to repeat it, but once you say the line, he is a rape, a convicted rapist. Yeah it kind of brings home the, no matter what way we argue about it and no matter what way we present it, he is a convicted rapist. And I could understand, not, and it's not just about the Me Too movement, it's people who look at sol in solidarity with the Me Too movement and people just from a moral perspective in general who would say, why are we giving inches and inches of column space to a convicted rapist? You say, has the world changed? Well, actually, would that, sh that would probably show that the world hasn't changed. Mm. I mean, the movements might have come about now to actually highlight things and say, this is unacceptable, but money talks. And if the money behind a Tyson comeback is huge, it will drown out by hook or crook, by any means necessary, it will drown out the protest. So that was Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt there. And he makes some superb points. But certainly, Mike Tyson seems to be a product of the system in some regard. And maybe those watching, as he did what he did back at the start of the 90s, that just allows you to continue this creation of him as the, the villainous creature that we want to see box on the canvas. I'm not too sure. I think it all plays into the freak show element of him coming back at 53 as well. I went and saw Jordan. I actually saw Jordan's last 40-point game in Washington. And I remember, you know, during the game, it felt like we weren't watching a normal basketball game. It was such a weird feeling to, to be in that stadium while Jordan was scoring because no one really cared about the game. He ended up winning the game for the Washington Wizards, essentially. But no one, no one cared. It wasn't about that. And I think that's kind of what this fight is about. It's about recreating something from our childhood or from our old memory. And, you know, Mike Tyson does take us back to 1986. He takes some of us back a long way. So I do get why millions will watch an old man, uh, or perhaps two, if Holyfield comes back as well. Because whether you know Mike Tyson from The Hangover, and let's be honest, The Hangovers were pretty big films, or as the most incredible force of a heavyweight boxer, he's still been a star for over 30 years. And this is Gareth A. Davies on the man himself. Of course, as you say, he was a convicted rapist, and he served that time in jail. He was the youngest heavyweight champion of the world at the age of 20, remember? You know, I know back in 86, mid-80s, it's a long time ago again, you know? So he was around and being incredibly successful at the beginning. When he came out of prison, and remember he was met by Muhammad Ali, they went to church, prayers were said, you know, he converted to Islam at the time. It was almost 
one of those moments that the world was watching the, and he was a bigger figure when he came out and it was when he came out obviously soon afterwards that he beat Frank Bruno he won the world title again he fought Evander Holyfield twice and he was as fascinating as he was infamous as he was brilliantly erudite having read a lot when he was away as well and being able to explore his intellectuality and when you think that his mother was a prostitute and his dad was a drug dealer and he grew up in gangs in Brownsville at the age of 11 and he was on the streets and you know he was in the wrong company it's extraordinary that he is a very aware conscious and quite a quite an inspirational human being now and I think the journeys of those kind of people fascinate us as human beings. And not only that, I mean, I remember when he came to fight Julius Francis here in 2000 and the fascination for him, the, the, the coverage of Mike from that was, I was literally stationed all day, every day where he was staying in London. And, and there was coverage front, back and middle of the newspaper. And that was before social media. Now that would have been trending every day on every platform because people wanted to know what was going on inside him but there was something coming off him a bristling energy coming off him and you know he's just he's a very very fascinating human being so that was gareth a davies there on mike tyson and after all that's been said in this last hour when mike tyson if mike tyson walks to the ring gets in it and fights Will I watch? Yes. So why do athletes come back? I think we've talked about so many of their reasons, but what about us? We're a part of this. Tyson is this broken hero and one stage, one of the most famous people on the planet. And he's still famous. And we want to go back to when we first saw him. And sure, there's a freak show part of this as well. And maybe the fight, whoever he ends up fighting, if he ends up fighting, will be stupid and staged. But we'll still be seeing Mike Tyson for one last time, and that will take us somewhere. So athletes come back for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is because we will watch and because we want them to. You've been listening to The Dive on TalkSport. The TalkSport Daily Podcast is proud to be in partnership with Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Whatever your mission, home or away, don't delay. Enterprise has the vehicle for the job. Rent from the best lineup in the UK. With over 450 branches, Enterprise has what your business needs. From compact three-door cars to spacious SUVs and people carriers to vans, they offer a large range of reliable vehicles perfect for the job. To find out more and book, visit enterprise.co.uk. Hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertzen the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertzen the Channelized Bimbingus of the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chattel sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how.